Genesis chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, the earth is yours and everyone who dwells in it. The world and all of the universe still stands as as yours, your possession. And we pray this morning that you would help us as your creatures to humbly submit ourselves to You, to look unto You, and that You, God, would reveal Yourself to us clearly through Your Word. God, we pray for distractions that are constant around here to be minimized, that we might zero in on and focus on Your Word, that You might teach us and grow us and change us, and that You might receive glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. No luck here. Well, we'll just keep going. Check. All right, take two. It's good. All right. We've been looking through Genesis for several weeks now. And when you think about Genesis, you've got to have this yearning and this longing in you that has really enjoyed thinking through the Garden of Eden and all of God's good creation. It's been so good to, to see God's good intent from the beginning, to hear what it was like, and to continue to... It's really loud, isn't it? Is this one on there? No? It's just this one. Check. This is awesome. <laughs> this, is, this is part of the fall. This is why Genesis chapter 3 is part of our story. Every one of you, if you didn't think you were connected to it before, you're connected now. So, welcome to post-sin world. And it makes me question, right? It's the same question that all of us should have. When we look around at the things of the world and the things that are in our lives, we could think, after looking at the good intention from the beginning, how in the world did we get here? We look around and we see destruction. There are hurricanes that will destroy places. We look around and we see wars where people will kill one another. We look around and we see tension in relationships in our homes. We see tension in government. We see tension in every single realm of life. Nothing is easy. Nothing is like it was in a sense. And I think the original hearers of Genesis would have had a similar thought. They, they were in this desert waiting to go into the promised land, but they had been slaves, and they probably would have thought too, 
after hearing this good talk of this good Creator and this good garden, how in the world did we end up here? Where we're coming out of slavery, where we're in the desert, where we're wanting food and water. How in the world did we get to this point? The reality is for every single one of us is that we, we cannot understand our lives. We cannot understand our world. We cannot understand all of the stuff that is going on unless we see through the lens of Genesis chapter 3. Israel, as they're hearing these words, could look at their position, could look at their past and say, how in the world, after such a good creation and good things going on, how in the world could we have gotten to this place? And, and what their problem isn't was the desert. And their problem isn't or wasn't that they were slaves. And our problem isn't the economy or who's in charge of the government or the relationship tension that we have. Our problem comes from Genesis chapter 3 and our problem is sin. Alienation from God. Distance from the one that we are designed to know and love. And as Genesis shows us the beginnings of the universe... It also shows us the beginnings of human sin. And the fall is what we say. This is the fall is the event where sin and alienation enter into the human world. After our good creator created this good place with people that were very good. And it all begins with this encounter we see in Genesis chapter 3. If you look in verse 1, there's this encounter that... This woman has with the serpent. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now serpents were a symbol and are a symbol of a lot. If you go to different hospitals, you might see some sort of serpent symbol. They were symbols of, you know, help, of aid, of cures. They were symbols of wisdom. And they've been used for lots of different symbols. But if you're thinking about what would the Israelites thought of when they see that there's a serpent in this garden, it's hard to think of another symbol, another animal that would have been the most anti-God there is. That is, that the serpent is the most unclean creature that they could have thought of. So this serpent stands as the best anti-God creature in the Israelites' mind. So the question is, who is this serpent? Who is this serpent? Well, it doesn't say here, and we don't know here, but the New Testament gives us his identity, I think. If you look in the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus is responding to some Pharisees, and he says to them that they're not sons of Abraham, and Abraham is in their father as they suppose. They have another father, he says. We see it in John eight forty four. He says, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And here's where we clue in on the identity of the servant. He was a murderer from the beginning, which seems to be an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent is a murderer, as we'll find out. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. The father of lies. Beyond that, we have Revelation chapter 12, which seems to link up both the serpent and Satan himself. It says in Revelation 12 that that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this serpent is equated with, uh, I'm not trying to get into those other passages specifically, but the serpent is equated with Satan himself. So that's what we need to receive here. Like, Who is this serpent? The serpent is Satan. 
It's the devil, as we call him. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. Because it seems as if, here's this serpent down here tempting towards sin, so it seems that there's some sin that has predated the fall. That there's something that's gone on in the heavens that has predated human sin. Now we don't have much about why this serpent is here. There's a few places that we could turn. Ezekiel 28 seems to speak about this rebellion from from Satan. Isaiah 14 might be a recapitulation of, of what happened in the heavens. But I think maybe the closest that we get in the scripture to this is Jude chapter or Jude verse six, not chapter six, when it says this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. It seems as if Satan and his angels were proud and they wanted to be God in the place of God, stand in his place, and instead of actually attaining that, they were thrown down. They were cast out by God. Strike two. Man, we're out. I'm just going to go loud. The fall is wreaking havoc on us today. Alright, let's do this. Take three. This will work. I don't have to hold it this way. I'll just take this. What can we do when we have these moments? You know what? What can we say here? We're just going to record it and put it online and act like everything's fine. So we have this servant. Seems to want to take the place of God. Thrown down, cast out. And this is why we see the serpent in the garden. Because he's rebelled against God. He truly is this anti-God. As much anti-God as you can be. And so what he's doing here is he's seeking to blind minds as we saw in 2 Corinthians 4. He is seeking to shoot flaming darts as we see from Ephesians chapter 6. He seeks those to devour. We see that in, in Peter. He's crafty. It says, so it says back in Genesis 3 that he's more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He's cunning. He's winsome. He's tricky. He doesn't just come and overpower them with his greatness and might, which it seems like he could have. He's, he's cunning. He's more cunning than that. And this serpent, we ought to know, is dangerous. A lot of you think about a serpent. That's what you think of. Danger. Stay away. But we're reminded... Even in this imagery, even in this using of this animal, the serpent, we're reminded that he's crafty and sly. But we also see something else here that I want us to notice. That this serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan and any angels and all of the angels are created beings. We think they were created sometime before the seventh day because it seems like the seventh day God stopped His creating and He rested. So sometime in between days one through six, He created these heavenly beings that we don't see an account of. But here's what we do know is that they are created. So in other words, we are not standing in a universe where we have good and evil going against each other as equal powers. What we have is a sovereign creator God and other created things. So we are not talking about an equal battle here. 
When we think about good rivalries, we're reminded that good rivalries are dualistic in a sense. They're people that have similar strength. So OU and Texas, it's a good rivalry if they're of equal strength. If one is way better than the other, it's not as fun to watch. Coke and Pepsi, they have equal buying power, equal market share. So it's a good rivalry because they have similar strength. And it's nice to see them go back and forth. Nike and Adidas, Yankees and Red Sox, Batman and Joker. We could go on and on. They're good and compelling because of their equal and similar strength. But when we speak of this serpent, when we speak of Satan, we are not speaking of a rivalry of a dualistic nature. We're not talking about powers of similar strength. I'm reminded of this great quote from this commentator that said, There may be rebels in his kingdom, but no rivals. So when we think about this serpent, we need to be reminded of that very reality, that there might be rebels, and there are after we see Genesis chapter 3, but there are no rivals. There are rebels, but no rivals. There's no contest here. One is created, the other is the uncreated one. One has a time and a place where he can be only at the permission of another. One will be ultimately and finally and fully defeated one day, and there is not a question that that will happen if you know the one who is uncreated. So the serpent is more crafty than the beast, and Satan is this powerful creature, but he remains a creature and can do nothing about this. He is made and ruled by the very one he rebelled against, and he will soon be crushed. We'll get to that. But this crafty serpent approaches the woman to speak. Verse 1, he says to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent comes to woman. And this may not seem like a, a big deal, but what he's doing, even in coming to the woman, is usurping the authority that God has given. The God-given order that God has put into creation. That God has put into humanity. See, man was created first, and then the woman. We're not talking about equality. We're talking about an order that God has set. Man is the one who is given the command not to eat of the tree. Man is the one who is to initiate the leaving and cleaving of the marriage that we saw in Genesis chapter 2. There's an order that God has placed in things. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11. He picks it up in, in, in Timothy He talks about there's an order that God has placed upon creation in man and woman. And the serpent is is coming and usurping that order by coming to the woman and not the man. See, the, the man, Adam, is the head of this marriage. That is to say, he is to lead this marriage. He is to protect his wife. He is to provide for her. He is to lead out in these things. And he is the head of this woman. And Satan, the serpent, usurps God's authority by coming to the woman first. He's going against God's good order by speaking to the woman. But he's also usurping Adam's authority. As the head of his household, as the one who's been given this kingly, priestly work from the Lord to hold dominion, to guard and keep this garden. He's usurping that role that God had given to Adam by coming in. So part of Adam's role entails not letting slithery snakes Slip up and talk to your girl. Right? That's like being a man 101. Like snakes don't talk to your woman. You got to get him out of there. So what Adam should be doing is, is, is checking out this situation. Doing some questioning. Figuring out where things are. Doing work. Guarding. Keeping. Cultivating this garden. And he should be pushing out uncleanness anywhere that it might be. And it seems like there might be some uncleanness here. He should either push it out or there should be a bruised heel and a busted head. That's what should be happening right here 
in the garden. But the serpent is, is crafty and cunning. Instead, the serpent is allowed to speak to the woman. And he says, did God actually say to you, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now this, this question, is it ought to be strikingly polite. Like, this is very innocuous. There is not much that's going like, to land a headline there if you just read through that question. This is not a hard question. You just question, did God really say? Sounds very polite. Now let's think about what the serpent said and what God actually said. Here's what God actually said. If you look in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 16, here's what God actually said. He commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now Satan's words again. Did God actually say to you, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God has given some some clear words in chapter 2. There's this emphasis on His goodness and provision. In a world of yes, there is one no. In a world of lavish provision, there is one restriction. And the serpent doesn't start out with coming up against God as if He's this horrible creator. As if He's mean. He suddenly brings something in. He doesn't outright oppose God and His Word, but He sows some seeds of doubt. Because here's what's going. His question brings into question God's goodness. It might sow some seeds of doubt about whether God is good, about His character. With with this one no that is being emphasized by the serpent, God's goodness is being doubted. You see, that's what's really on display here, is is that Satan is questioning God's character, God's goodness. That's what he's actually questioning. And here's what he's emphasizing, the restriction. In a world of yes, there's one no, and the serpent is emphasizing that one no, that one prohibition. He's not speaking about the provision. He's questioning the restriction. And ultimately, this shouldn't work. Why shouldn't it work? It shouldn't work because woman should know the character of God as revealed so far. How He's been so good. How He's been good in His creation. How He's provided good food, a good place, a place to meet with Him. How He's provided things that are beautiful. God has shown Himself over and over again, even in this short creation account that we've seen in Genesis, as really, really good. And so she shouldn't be shocked by this. It shouldn't... It should not work that he's trying to pull her away from thinking about God's goodness. Because she should know his character. How important is it for us to know the character and nature of God? We have said before that theology is a war plan. And here is where it matters. Because when we know the character of God, these kind of things don't sound right. They don't land in your heart the way they're meant to land by a cunning serpent. They don't give the doubt that they're meant to give upon God. When we see as knowing the the character and, and goodness of God, when we have this theology which is our war plan, we see the laws and commands as not just restrictions, but as showing us the will and character of a good father. That's what they're doing. We think about the law as harsh often. But the law is revealing God's nature, revealing His character, and we need to see who this God is. And if we know God and His character, then we can push back these invading seeds of doubt that will be poured upon us with the character and nature of God. Now I'll admit that sometimes we, we don't have any idea why these restrictions are given. 
Sometimes we don't know why God gives certain commands. And often we're not given the why of all that God does or all of His restrictions in our life. We're not given the why Adam and Eve couldn't eat the tree. We never see that. We can guess, but we don't know. And doubts will scream at us in those moments. They will point to these restrictions. They will cast shadows on God. But we should never be left with this wondering of who gave this command and who He is. Because God has clearly revealed Himself. We're not always given the why, but God always reveals Himself. We're not always given these great explanations, but God always wants to give of Himself. So He doesn't give the answer to this restriction of the tree. He doesn't always give an answer for all the restrictions and the commands He's placed in our lives. But He does give us Himself. And He wants us to be satisfied with that. Now the serpent has kind of shown the woman the bait and and hidden the hook. Put the bait out there, it looks good, but his question hits the mark. And we can see this in her response. It gains a small foothold. In verse 2, we see her respond. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But it doesn't seem like such a bad response. So maybe you should ease off of Eve if that's where you're at right now. doesn't seem like such a, a bad response. But here's what she has done. She has taken the bait. She's minimized the provision of God and emphasized the restriction from God. She's got these seeds of doubt invading her mind. One thing is maximized. Other things are minimized. And so it goes. We have a subtle but important shift in the woman's mind right now. A subtle shift away from God and a subtle shift toward the serpent. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Versus God's words, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I like what one commentator said, Abe's misquote here reduces the lavish generosity of God's Word to the level of mere, perhaps grudging permission. And that shift was subtle, but this is where it's going. Here's another one. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, or you'll die. Versus God's words, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So a woman has downplayed God's provision added another command from the God from God painting God as more harsh than before as more grudging as he gives out food for her to eat she's lost ground she notes the restricted tree she says you can't eat of it or touch of it but it's in the midst of the garden she says so it seems as if in in Eve's mind this tree is growing it's in the middle of the garden It's the one she really wants. She's starting to look at that one restriction more and more and more now. Now the serpent takes the the foothold that he's gained and he opens it up with the woman. He explains to her in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, "You You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This serpent is 
crafty. He is cunning in his approach. He questions God's character in some ways. He brings it up simply, kind of seems like innocently, innocuously he brings it up, casts doubt on the woman, and now he's starting to use half-truths. That is, he's not speaking the truth. In a sense, he's right. You won't die. Adam doesn't die for another 900 years. So he doesn't eat the fruit and fall down dead. So the serpent is right. Now, of course, we're, we're missing the mark in terms of what death really is here, but he's casting out ideas that aren't actually that false. They're only partially false. He says, your eyes will be opened. Seems like this passage agrees. You look in verse 7. The eyes of both were open. Verse 22. God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So he's not totally off base. He is speaking some things that ring true to them. He is speaking some things that would matter to them. He has carefully crafted this message so that Eve would again see the bait and miss the hook. The serpent casts a vision, as it were, of the future for this woman. God had given her a vision of the future. He said this to man... I'm going to bless you. I want you to rule over all the universe. So He's given them blessing and ruling over the earth, holding dominion. But He wants them to do it in one way. Don't eat of this tree. So there's blessing and there's rule, but included in that with God is is with submission. That's the vision from God of the future. Here's the vision from the serpent. Blessing and Godhood and rule, but apart from submission to God. In other words, God is holding out on you. You can have all those things that God had promised you, but you can do them without God now. You don't need Him. And indeed, He's holding out on you anyway, so why would you want Him? And so with this cunning, He plants these seeds of doubt, these half-truths, and the serpent takes Eve right up to the cliff. Right to the edge. Suddenly, He took her there. Not all at once, not rapidly. It was a slow, steady slope down to the cliff as it goes in our lives so often. And the same cunning and serpentine whisper that Eve heard is used in the temptation of Christians today. That is to say that we are tempted to see God as harsh. That we we want to blow up the restrictions from God and minimize the lavish provision from God. We see God as restrictive rather than good and allowing us so much freedom. We think these thoughts that a good God wouldn't hold me back from this. Surely a good God wouldn't hold me back from this person who makes me happy. Surely a good God wouldn't hold me back from this relationship no matter what it does in His Word if it's outside of His Word, outside of His command. Surely He wouldn't hold me back from that if He's a good God. Surely He wouldn't hold me back from making all the money I want. Surely He wouldn't hold me back from this job that I'd like. Surely He wouldn't hold me back from having children. All these things we could put in our minds and we say, surely a good God wouldn't hold us back from that. Because that seems like something that would be good and would make me happy. And we can fill that with whatever we want. And we start to think of God as this God who's harsh and restrictive. Or, we might understand a little bit of sin, might understand a little bit of our own actions and how there are consequences with those actions, 
But we might think that surely none of them will kill us. Right? I mean, I know if I do this, it's not right, but it's not going to kill me. I know if I'm with that person, if I sleep with that person, it's not going to kill me. It might not be good, it might have bad consequences, but it's not going to kill me. I know if I, if I indulge in this purchase and just spend all my money in one direction, it won't kill me. And the same words that Satan whispered into the woman are going on through our ears. You won't surely die. And this seems like it matches up with our experience. Because we commit different acts, we sin, and the consequences seem to be delayed. So we're almost re-emphasized in what we're doing. Sin seems fun, it seems desirable, it even seems acceptable because we're not dead. We're not being judged, it doesn't seem like. And I like what one pastor has said, that Satan's first device is to draw the soul into sin. To present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison. This is our experience. We get the cup, but we... Don't think about the poison. We see the bait, we don't think about the hook. We too hear those words, you won't surely die, as we move slowly down the direction toward destruction. So the bait has been set. There's doubt in the woman's heart. There's this one tree that is growing in desire in her eyes. And she says in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Now let's stop there and just think that this, this temptation has picked up a lot of momentum. Now moving from, from doubt to using these natural desires that are in human beings. God made the garden beautiful. God made fruit taste really good. He made food good. God made Adam and Eve to enjoy goodness. To enjoy tasty foods. To enjoy beauty. God made Adam and Eve to be wise. He made humanity to image Him, this all-wise God. He made them to image that, to know things, to be wise. They were made this way. And so what's happening here is these natural good desires that are in Eve are starting to mix with these unnatural desires, temptations from the serpent, and they're gaining a lot of momentum. You see, those desires that seeing the fruit as good and tasty and desiring to be wise, those aren't bad desires. But these desires are being channeled in opposition to the will of God. They're being channeled in opposition to God's clear command. God had given them beauty, He'd given them good food, He'd given them a place to walk with Him, to be wise, to know things. And now a woman is focusing in, not how to enjoy that, but how she can't have it, she thinks, because of the restriction. Not that God was giving all these things before, but that now it doesn't seem like I can have it because of the restriction He's placed. And in a world of provision, the one restriction had grown so tempting that the woman says in verse 6, She took its fruit, she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. It is stunning how fast verse 6 comes. How quick the the story of all this stuff going on, verses 1 through 5, and so quickly she takes it, she eats it, she hands it to her husband, he eats it. The slope was gentle, and now it has gone all the way to a sheer face. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave. They've gone off the cliff. And this is how it works in our lives as well. Seems slow, 
and gentle, and then we're all over the cliff before we even know it. And the serpent had led this woman up to this point, and she had decided to jump off. And it seems as if Adam is standing idly by, passively watching this scene take place, and he eats as well. And as a result, their eyes were opened as the serpent said, but not quite like the serpent said. And not quite like Adam and Eve thought. We see in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they, were, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their eyes were open, As we saw in chapter 2, they were both naked and unashamed at the end of chapter 2. Things were going really well. We were hoping that that was going to be the rallying cry for the rest of our lives. But it wasn't. That now they are naked and ashamed. Their eyes are opened and they're opened not just to wisdom. They're open to their own shame. They're open to their own guilt. What they see is their own nakedness. The end of chapter 2, they're like a kid getting out of the bathtub, running around proud of his life, himself. The beginning of chapter 3, they're like any of us if we were exposed, is finding cover as soon as possible. They're humiliated in front of one another. They're ashamed in front of one another. And before God, they're feeling shame and guilt. Their innocence is gone. This is what's going on in verse 7. They are feeling the weight of what they've done already. And in a weak and desperate attempt to hide their shame and guilt, they sow leaves together. And now we get to reality that we all can join in with them. Because we might not have understood that they were naked and unashamed very well. At least we don't feel the the greatness of that like they had. But we surely feel this. We feel the same humiliation, the same guilt. If you are not a believer, you have a sense of guilt that is still within you. And shame. The humiliation... The shame, the guilt that comes from sin, that comes from rebellion from God, comes when we seek to be like God without submitting to God. This is the weight of what they are feeling as they frantically search for some leaves to cover up their shame. None of these things that were promised to them, that your eyes will be open and you won't surely die, really lived up to what they had thought, I would expect. They were left, I think, even as you see verse 7, very unsatisfied. If it had gone like they thought, it would seem that they wouldn't need to to cover themselves up. But they do. They're frantically searching to correct this problem, to cover up the shame and the guilt that they so quickly felt. It didn't start out like rebellion. It didn't seem like that. It didn't seem like Eve was just trying to be this rebellious woman, run away from God. It didn't start out that way. But here they are, after sin, where shame and guilt will follow any rebellion. There's not a more tragic story in all the world than what we've just read in Genesis 3. And we, we understand tragedy. It is all around us all the time. But this is the biggest tragedy that has ever been. That here you have this good creator God who has created a good place, who's placed 
humans in this place and even went out of his way when man was alone and it wasn't good to make sure that we had good gifts. And he looked at all this stuff and he said, it is very good. But now we're after Genesis 3 and we see shame and humiliation and more and more tragedy is compounded over and over again. And the reason I think that this is the most tragic story of all is really because of the number of casualties. If you look in Romans 5, if you're thinking about the horror of any war, the number that you want to stack up in your mind to think about how tragic it is, is the number of of bodies, the death counts. The reason I think that this is the most tragic story of all is because of the death count, the death toll that it has left behind in its wake. If you look in Romans 5, In verse 12, it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sin. The horror of the story is the results are still being realized by all of us today. That is that sin entered through one man, but now death and sin has spread to all men. So Adam, he stood as this kingly figure of humanity, this priestly figure representing humanity before God. He stood as a representative head of every single one of us. He was representing us as a human in this garden. And his sin, as our representative head, took us off the cliff with him. Took us down the slope. And now we are all guilty. We are all sinful. We are all dead. Because of Adam's sin. The sin of Adam is the sin of all of us. Guilty of trying to do this God thing without God in the picture. Trying to live life happy and satisfied without the commands and restrictions of God being heeded. And His nature is now our nature. His guilt is now our guilt. And now we all inherit a sinful nature. All of us. Your child is sinful. You probably just saw it for mine, but you know that that's not our case alone. You are sinful. Your inclinations are not toward God, they're toward evil. There's always this question of what happens if there's this man on an island who's never heard about God... What happens when he dies? Well, part of the answer could be, well, if this man is on this island, this innocent man on this island has never heard about God and dies, he would go to heaven. But the problem is is that that man doesn't exist and has never existed since Genesis chapter 3. That there is no innocent man according to the Scripture. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is no one who is righteous, not even one. That God could search the whole globe. And I'm sure He does. (laughs) Finding, trying to find one that would seek after Him, and there's none. So all of us now have this sinful nature, now live in this sinful nature against God. Our inclinations aren't toward Him, but away from Him. And Adam was humanity's representative. That is to say that Adam was the best of us. Adam was in this place where he was able not to sin. Now you have to be careful with that, but that's, that's where he was. Adam and Eve were able not to sin. And they still sinned. He was created by this good God, placed in this good garden, had the ideal situation. 
Couldn't have been a better situation for Adam and Eve. And they still slip and fall into other sins. In other words, if humanity couldn't have gotten it right in Adam, if Adam couldn't have gotten it right, then you and I surely wouldn't have gotten it right either. So we think, is this fair? Is this fair that we get Adam's sin nature? Is this fair that we receive his guilt? Is it fair that death has now spread to us because of what someone else did? That doesn't ring right for us. Right? We are innocent until proven guilty. We do not have to pay the consequences for others. This is how our world is set up. And yet, the Scripture says in Romans 5.12 that death is spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, I'm saying that because of Adam's sin, we are all guilty under God. Because of Adam's sin, we all have sinful inclinations, sinful natures. Is that fair? Once again, Adam was the best of us. He had an ideal situation and fell into sin. So we are foolish to think that we would do differently. He was created good by good God, put in this ideal situation. If you and I were there, we would have done the same. If humanity couldn't have gotten it right with Adam, none of us could have gotten it right. We would have done the same. Every time we hear that word, it's not fair. How could that be? It's coming from willfully sinful people. That is to say, this, is, this isn't our kids that are saying these things. Maybe they are. Our young kids are saying, I'm innocent. See, I haven't done anything good or bad. I don't even know good or bad. No, the people that are saying it's not fair are people that have willfully sinned against God. Who have done things that they know to be wrong because their conscience is bearing witness that they are evil. We don't just accidentally slip into sin all the time. We blatantly rebel against God. Because of this, we are guilty before Him. We too are deserving of the death that Adam is to receive. We are deserving of the guilt that is upon our lives. And one of the big questions that you can get, of, get to here is, is why? Now, maybe we accept that we have sinful natures now. That man, if Adam couldn't have gotten it right, we wouldn't have gotten it right. But why? Why did God let this happen? Why did, why did God let this in there? Why did the serpent rebel? Why did God create someone that would rebel? And it seems it's clear in Scripture that God is never responsible for sin. He never takes the blame for sin. He is completely holy, without blame in any area. But why? It seems as if God permits and ordains these things, but Why? What is going on here that that would have this go on that we now face the consequences of? And I would just say that I think that in all of my thoughts this week, I know that there's less than I know than than I actually know. And before we start to question back to God, we need to rightly remember where our breath comes from to question Him. That is to say that God put that breath in us and that brain to think with. So before we throw accusations against Him, we need to remember our place before Him. I'm not saying don't ask these questions, but I'm also saying remember who you are. And as we think through this text, we need to remember what has been shown to us, what's been clear to us. Here's what's clear to us, is the character and nature of God has been clearly revealed in the things that were created, and even explicitly to Adam and Eve. That is that God has evaluated things and said, they're good, they're good, they're good. He's given good gifts, He's given woman to man, He's given good food, beautiful things. God has continued to show His nature over and over and over again as good. 
In fact, that we see that Adam and Eve aren't snuffed out right in this moment in verse 7 is another figure that would point us to the goodness and greatness of God. So why? Why did God let this happen? And the question doesn't really have an answer in my mind. I don't know. I can guess. I think that in some ways that God letting sin and ordaining these things to happen will somehow work out for the maximizing of His glory. That somehow that in this story, sin plays a part to further bring glory and honor to God. That's not my idea, but I think it's a good one. That maybe that God has this deeper revealing of His character and nature and of who He is because of sin. That is, we might have a greater sense of the depth of His goodness once we've seen evil. We might have a greater sense of the depth of His love once we've seen evil. We might have a greater sense of His mercy and His grace once we know how great our rebellion is against Him. Those aren't definitive answers. Don't take it from me. Search those out yourself. But that might be a place to start. But here is part of the answer that is given in Romans chapter 5. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That is where we see sin, we're seeing grace abound in our Lord. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is, there is a ton of lavish provision from God. We keep reading, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Amen. Take and eat plummeted humanity into sin and death. But there was another that came and lived and said, take and eat. And he wasn't just pointing to earthly things in the end. He was pointing to the reality of his body and his blood being shed and broken that we might truly take and eat and live. That is, God has provided. He has given lavish provision in himself to take away this curse that we see in Genesis chapter 3. When Jesus takes the bread and says, take and eat. He is opening up a way through His body, through His blood, for redemption of sinful humanity. And so as we look at Genesis 3, many questions remain. And we'll go through this and many more questions will remain. But here's what we know. That you will not understand our world apart from this chapter. That all of our problems, all of our problems are rooted here as well. That our problem is sin. And that there's this guilt and shame associated with that that everyone feels. And if you do not point them to their sin, if there is another problem, their parents, their circumstance, their situation, then they will never find the cure. 
Here we are pinpointing our problem so that we can point to the one who came to wipe it out. It's a problem that God felt too. Indeed, He felt it so much that He became flesh to roll back the work of this, of this serpent. To roll back the work of sin. To roll back the work of death. So we don't have all the answers, but here's what we're given over and over again in Genesis and over and over again in the Scripture. Not all the answers, not all the whys, not all the hows. We're given God Himself. Over and over and over again, God reveals Himself Not so that we'll know all the answers, but so that we can trust Him. And this is how He desires us to move forward. Onward in faith and trust. Knowing His good character. Trusting His great provision. Knowing and trusting Him in the restrictions as well. May we move onward as we're meant to live. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much that You have lavishly given us Your grace. Everyone here this morning that draws breath has been given more grace than they deserve, more grace than they even realize. Father, when we help us to feel the weight of Genesis 3, and the tragedy of the story that we see, help us to understand that we play a part in it as well. But God, more than that, reveal Yourself. Reveal your good character, your good nature to us. Your grace, your mercy, your provision in so many ways. In ways hopefully that we haven't seen before. And God, we we know some of the end of the story. That one day there's going to be a final and full finishing of evil and sin and death. But God, that day is not yet. And so while we wait, we say... Would you let your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. And we also pray that 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 day would come speedily. God, thank you for your word. Amen.